the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Sorry, I'm still trying to figure out how to set this up. Um, it's been several weeks. Uh, we haven't had a Bible study about Genesis, so I'm anxious to get back into it. We're almost done. Huh? Someone had withdrawal. Yeah, withdrawal. Someone, someone posted that they had Genesis withdrawal. Um, so, um, you know, let's try to get back into it. Let's remind ourselves of where we are, right? So we're toward the back end of Genesis. Um, last time we looked at Genesis 42, 43, and 44, okay? In Genesis 42, this is when, okay, at this point, Joseph is uh, the second in command uh, in Egypt, Okay, and so his family, of course, they don't know that he's alive yet. His family is starving because of the famine that's in the land. And so uh, the brothers of Joseph are sent by Jacob, his father, to go to Egypt to gather food. Because as you remember, um, God had revealed to Joseph that he would that there would be a famine. And so he knew it ahead of time. So he gathered up enough food during the seven years of plenty so that there would be food left over for the seven years of famine that would come afterward. And Joseph was the one responsible for all of this, like um, uh, collecting the food and storing it and so on. So it was known that Egypt was a place where there was food. So all of the surrounding nations, because the famine was affecting everybody, they would come to Egypt uh, to get food. So Joseph's brothers, okay, who are living in Canaan, right, with Jacob, they would go, they were sent there to go get food. Joseph recognizes them, and because they are the ones actually who sold him to slavery to the Egyptians for him to be in the place where he is, Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so Joseph is like um, treating them harshly, not because he is full of hatred toward them, but because he wants to test and see whether they have any repentance in their heart, whether they have changed from the people that they were many, many years ago. We're talking now about 21 years ago that, that he was sold into slavery. So he wants to see if they've, if they've changed. So he detains one of the brothers, Simeon, and he, he accuses them. And he tells, says, if you want to see me again, go and bring your youngest brother, Benjamin. He is the one who they didn't, he didn't come with them and bring him back. Okay, that was in chapter 42. In chapter 43, Jacob, their, their father, reluctantly allows Benjamin to go back with the remaining brothers back to Egypt because they were starving and they needed more food. And in chapter 44, again, um, they still don't know that this is Joseph. Joseph accuses Benjamin, okay, who is like the most beloved son of his, brother, of his father. He accuses Benjamin of stealing uh, like the, the chalice that Joseph, the, the Joseph's chalice. Okay, again, it's a false accusation. He actually had some the web for that. Just tap that search chip below. No. So he, um, he, he places the chalice in like Benjamin's pack to like frame him for this theft. And then uh, he accuses him of it. And when all the brothers find that the chalice is in Benjamin's pack, they're all like shocked and they don't know like they feel like this is like God's judgment on them for what they had done in their life before to Joseph. Um, and then uh, Judah, he offers to stay uh, as a prisoner with Joseph instead of Benjamin. Okay, so at, by this point, by the end of chapter 44, the brothers have demonstrated um, a lot of uh, self-sacrifice, a lot of love. They're, they're willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of Benjamin, for the sake of the others. And so at this point, when we start in chapter 45, which is actually one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible that we're going to look at today, um, Joseph is kind of at a point where he's seen enough, like he's seen uh, how his brothers have changed, and he is ready now to reveal uh, to them who he is. Okay. So it says, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, right? So after seeing like his brothers, they truly cared about their younger brother, Benjamin. Um, and, and he sees that they're, they've changed. They see that, he, that they have remorse about what it is that they've done to him, you know, even though they don't know that this is him. They see that they ha he has remorse. He couldn't contain his emotions anymore. And so he reveals to them in private and secret who, who he is. And he wept aloud 
and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Okay. Remember from before we said that Joseph is a messianic symbol. Okay. He, he, he is a symbol of Christ. So one of the things that we see here when he says, I am Joseph, it is a revelation, right? He is revealing something that was hidden, something that was secret, something that no one understood or knew, but it was true all along. He is revealing himself and he's saying, I am Joseph. Just as the Lord Christ, he is revealing himself, right? He comes in his incarnation and he reveals himself. He makes known that he is the son of God. Here, Joseph is also making this known. And also, just as Joseph, before revealing himself to his brothers, he tells all of the Egyptians, like the strangers, he tells them to go out of their presence so that his revelation is to his brothers only. This represents that God is revealing himself to those who are close to him, to those who are willing to accept him, to those who will not reject him, to those who want to seek him and to find him. God is revealing himself to them. But to those who are the enemies of God, to those who reject God and reject the idea of God and not open to the idea of receiving God or to believing in him, to them, God does not reveal himself, right? Here, Joseph is revealing himself only to his brothers, which like represents those who are willing to believe, those who want to believe, okay? Um, the Egyptians, you know, standing away, you know, far away from them, you know, not, not seeing what's going on, Maybe they heard like the, the weeping, maybe they heard them like emotionally, like in their, in their re, re, reuniting and so on. Okay, just as, but, but even though this was happening in their presence, even though like they were present and hearing this, they did not understand the significance or the importance of it. And we see actually in, in, in the life of, 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 of believers um, and, and throughout different, many different things that happen in the New Testament, there are a lot of very important events that are happening while unbelievers are present, and yet those unbelievers do not understand and do not convert or change as a result of the, the amazing things or the miracles that are happening. Like, for instance, there were guards that were uh, guarding the tomb of Christ, okay? And those guards, they saw a light, they felt an earthquake, right? And they ran away at the time of when the resurrection was happening. But they did not believe, right? Like they, this did not cause them to believe. They, they saw this event happening before them, but they didn't understand the significance of the event, right? Also, the, the, the traveling companions of Saul, when Saul was traveling on the road and the Lord Christ appeared to him um, and, and, and spoke with him, his companions, they saw the light and they heard the sounds, but they didn't understand. Like they couldn't understand the voice that was speaking. Even though they were in the presence of the Lord, just as Saul was in the presence of the Lord, but they did not understand. They were not converted. They did not change as Saul did. So even though God reveals himself to the whole world, there are some that are willing to receive what it is that they see, what it is that they hear, and there are some that are unwilling. When Christ speaks about the parable of the four soils, the parable of the sower, it is the same seed that is thrown on all all the grounds, right, the four kinds of ground that we speak about in that parable, all four of the grounds receive the same seed, but only one of those grounds produces fruit, only one of those grounds, right, the other three, for different reasons, they do not produce any fruit, okay, this is the same principle, right, here, Joseph is revealing himself to those who are willing to hear, to those who will believe, and those who will see, who here is represented by his brothers, okay, um, the idea that, um, you know, you have a lot of people that they make the argument that first I want proof and evidence, and when you give me the proof and evidence, then I will believe, okay? But how is it that the Lord, how, how is it that the Lord uh, approached this, okay? He told the people, first have faith, and then you will understand. If you try to understand in order to have faith, you will never understand, and you will never have faith. But if you first believe, like when he says, believe my words, and if you believe my words, then you will fully understand. You have to experience it. You have to go into it. You have to, you have to apply it. You have to be in it when you are in it, once you believe it. And believing it doesn't mean that I don't struggle in faith. We all struggle in faith in various ways. We all struggle. Like even though I believe something is true, sometimes 
thoughts of doubt or feelings of doubt come to my mind. Is this really the truth? Like who, who, who really said that this is the truth? And maybe we think about it, we question it. But those who are struggling in faith to believe, those are the ones who will receive from God this, uh, this understanding, this knowledge of the truth, a knowledge that cannot be, um, like, cannot be questioned, something that is so sure in us to make us to believe, right? Because we are struggling in faith and we are, we are receiving understanding from God through his spirit because we have committed to faith. As opposed to those who are sitting and saying, okay, show me every possible proof until I'm satisfied that the proofs you have shown me are sufficient, okay, and then I will believe. The problem with this is that there is no proof that is sufficient to, to, to show to someone who is an unbeliever because it is the, the, the true evidence is an evidence that we experience as believers through our conversion, through our faith, through, through our experience with God that cannot be explained. It is difficult to share. It is difficult to explain. This uh, understanding, this deep depth of understanding that we have comes after faith, not before faith. Okay. Um, this statement here that Joseph is making when he says, I am Joseph, it is similar to uh, the way that Christ spoke to Saul when he says in Acts 9 verse 5, he says, I am Jesus whom you are uh, persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats, right? It is hard for you. I am Jesus. Just like here he says, I am Joseph, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, a revelation, okay? Um, here, just as the Lord Christ resurrected from the dead and everybody was in shock and amazement that he was resurrected from the dead and it's something that they could not believe. This is a similar experience here that Joseph's brothers are having that they see him as one who was dead and is now alive, right? This is like a symbol of the resurrection. He was sold into slavery. They thought that he had died. They told his father even that he had died. His father Jacob believed that he was dead all this time, and now suddenly he is alive. Just that, like the Lord Christ, everyone saw him on the cross. Everyone saw him buried in the tomb, and now suddenly he is alive, right? The Lord Christ and, and Joseph, there's the, the, the Joseph is a symbol. Uh, of, of the Lord. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. This is truly amazing, remarkable, right? Imagine you are in his position. And with the power that you have now, with the knowledge and understanding that these people rejected you, they threw you into a pit, they wanted to kill you, they threw you into slavery, they lied about what they did, and, and it's been so many years, right? You can imagine that anyone in this position would have harbored such great bitterness, resentment, hatred, desire for revenge against these people that did this to me, who are supposed to be my own family, right? who are the ones that are closest to me, and that you would want them to suffer, and you would want them to be upset, and you want them to feel guilty, and you want them to feel shame, and you want them to feel all the negative things possible as a result of what it is that they have done to me, right? And how they have mistreated me, and the injustice that has happened, and to seek justice, right? But what is it that we hear here from Joseph? Before even he gives them an opportunity to talk, before even he had, they have an opportunity to say sorry, before they express any remorse, before they do anything like any type of repentance, before they say anything, he anticipates, right? He anticipates that they are sorrowful. He anticipates. He says, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, right? Like be be before, before he hears anything from them, this is like the compassion and the love that he had for them. He cares so much, not, not to get justice, not to seek revenge, but he doesn't want them to be sad. He doesn't want them to be upset, right? He wants them to feel joyful. Don't feel upset about what it is that you did to me because God turned it into good. Don't be upset. I don't blame you for what you did. Not even waiting until after an apology to say that to them, you know? Sometimes when we talk to somebody that has wronged us, what we're really listening for and waiting for is an apology. You know what? If he apologizes, 
then I'll feel like, okay, I got what I wanted, then maybe I can have a relationship with this person again. He didn't even give them the chance to apologize. He told them ahead of yet. It's like he accepted like their apology before they even apologized. Okay. Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. Okay. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So he turned it into what? God used your wicked act to save you. You know, God, God took your wickedness that you did for no good reason and turned it as a means of salvation for you. Right? Like that is, uh, that is the power of redemption and salvation that God offers. God is taking our wickedness, our wrong decisions, our wrong actions, our rebellion, everything we are doing wrong, and he is turning it as an opportunity for salvation. Right? This is, this is the love of the Lord. He did not seek them to grovel at his feet. He did not seek to destroy their reputation and to spread rumors and to tell the people, look, look at what these people did to me. He did none of this. And actually, you can tell by the reaction of everybody else, you know, that maybe he had never even shared with anyone what it is that his brothers had done to him. Like he protected their reputation even in, when they were not present, instead of trying to destroy them and spread rumors about them. Also, you see how he longs for them, you know, like he desires to be with them. He, he wants them to be close to him, okay, to hold them, for them to be near him, okay. He remembers the facts, you know, he is not deluded. It's not like he is, he is delusional and he's blocked out the memories of what has happened in the past. He says to them, I am Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Like, I, I remember what you did. I remember your sin. I remember your wickedness. I remember your, your direct attack on me. I'm the one that you sold into Egypt. But that memory does not cause him to feel hatred. It doesn't call, cause anger to stir in, in him. And it, doesn't, it is not such a debilitating emotion that causes him to be unable to function. Right? Sometimes we experience very difficult things in life from other people. And it completely destroys us. Like, not physically, but emotionally and mentally. And we feel like we are living our life carrying so much baggage and pain and regret and anger. Right? But what is it that Joseph has experienced? He's experienced so much difficult things. He's been falsely accused. His people have tried to kill him. He's been in prison. Like, like people have forgotten about him. Like so many negative experiences this man has experienced, right? But at the end of it all, you feel like he's coming out of it unscathed, like without any wounds, like without any suffering. But even though it was a difficult experience, he walked away from it like victoriously, right? Almost like he was not a victim of it at all. Like he was so powerful. None of it affected him in any way, okay? This is the power of God in us, that when we go through difficult things, right, that when we go through very difficult things, the more we are holding on to God, the more we find support in God, not support in others. Maybe other people, they, they abandon me. Other people, they reject me. But if in my eyes, God is so real and present that he is a friend to me, and I speak to him, then, then it's, I, have not, I do not feel abandoned. You know, anyone who feels that sense of abandonment is going to feel and experience the wounds of abandonment. Anyone who feels hatred is going to feel the wounds of hatred. But if the Lord is with us, then I do not feel abandoned, because even though, yes, these people are treating me a certain way, but God is present with me and I am not alone. And even though certain people are insulting me and mocking me, but the Lord is speaking comfort to me. So if the Lord is truly real in our lives in every way, then we can walk out of a situation like this, like Joseph did, completely free of the, the, the bondage, of the suffering, of all he experienced, that he is psychologically, emotionally healthy coming out of this, to where even when he sees his accusers, when he sees his attackers, when he sees the people who sought to destroy him, he can look at them with a straight face, with honesty, with love, with compassion, with not thinking how you hurt me and how I'm focusing on myself and my pain, but I'm focusing on your pain. I'm focusing on how, what is it you experience, the suffering you experience as a result of the guilt that you experience from treating me the way that you did. It is beyond comprehension how someone could do this, right, except for the work of God in him. 
<clears throat> the people who become angry whenever we are mistreated, become angry against our attackers or against those who abuse us or mistreat us. Sometimes we feel that we win the more we see their destruction, the more we see their sadness, the more we see their failure, we feel like we are winning. We say, what, well, you know, God is avenging me. God is avenging me against my enemies. The more that we see them, you know, fail in something, you know, this is God repaying them for what they did. Okay. This is not what Joseph did, right? Joseph was the tool and the means of restoring his brothers who had experienced such guilt and sadness for 20 years over what it is that they had done to their younger brother. He actually, Joseph, was the one to restore. He was the one to, to, to address this problem in them. And the idea of, of, of winning against our enemies is, is false, right? How do we win against our enemies? We win by forgiveness. Because if I am living with unforgiveness, in my heart, okay, I am the only one who is suffering from that. No one suffers but me. I'm walking through my life constantly in hatred and anger and remembering uh, day by day the suffering I experienced due to others, and I'm in prison, right? Here, Joseph was totally free. He was totally free even while he was physically in prison because he harbored no hatred toward anyone, and he saw that every action that happened to him was by the, per by the permission of God. God allows this. You know, when King David was fleeing from his son Absalom, and he met this man named Shimi. This man named Shimi was cursing David. He was, was mocking him. And the people who were with David, his men, they were like, how can you say this about the king? How can you mock the king like this? And they're like telling David, should we go and kill him? And David said, no. Maybe God has sent him. Maybe God sees that this is what I need to hear is these insults and these mockings, right? If we see that everything that happens to us, even the wicked things, even the actions of sinful people, the sinful actions, even those things, if we see them as being by the permission of God and that God is using them for good, just as Joseph here said that all of the things you did against me and all the suffering I experienced, God was doing it for good. So don't be upset with yourselves because God turned it into good, right? This is a, a freeing way of thinking completely. Like it brings freedom to me because I no longer have to live wanting certain people to suffer, wanting certain people to get what they deserve, living with this constant hatred and, and kind of replaying it in my mind again and again and again. What is it that you did to me? No, in the end, I say, you know, I don't agree with what you did. What you did to me was horrible and it was a sin, but I accept from that this is coming from God that God sees that this is necessary. God sees that this is something he's going to turn into good. It doesn't mean that God wants us to suffer. It doesn't mean that God encourages sin. It means that in God, everything that God allows in our life, he turns it into good. And even this action that Joseph experienced from his brothers, God turned it into good. <clears throat> For these two years, so he's explaining to them now, for these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you and the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Okay. Here, like Joseph is actually a savior to them. Like he is actually, like he's, a, he's not there just, you know, giving them hugs and kisses and, you know, so, so nice to see you again after so long. And, you know, he's happy to see them. No, that's, that's just the beginning, right? He, he's happy to see them. He wants to be with them. He forgives them, but that's just the beginning. Now he's ready to give to them. He's not just, his, his sentiment toward them is not just one of, I forgive you for what you did for me in the past. Have a nice life. He could have done so. He could have just said, okay, you know, we, I forgave you for what you did in the past. I'll give you some food, go back to your father, enjoy your time. Okay? That's who he could be. And, and, and actually, that's, jo that's what Joseph did with absolutely every person who came to him. Right? Every person that came to him, he gave him the food that they asked for, and then he sent them on their way. Right? And, and if he harbored hatred toward his brothers, then he could have, you know, even if he were to forgive, 
he wouldn't want to be in their presence. You know, sometimes we, you know, we forgive people, but it doesn't mean that we like to be with them. Because every time we see them, it's a reminder to us of what they did. And we question that they really changed. We question, you know, like, like it's, it causes, it stirs up emotions and anger and negative feelings when we are always with the people that hurt us in some way. And Joseph could have very easily done this. And actually, if he would have done it, none of us would have criticized him for it. Said, okay, Joseph, you're already so gracious that you have accepted your brothers, that you have forgiven them, that you told them, don't be angry with yourselves, and that you give them food and money and all the stuff that you gave them. Okay, end of story. You know, everybody is happy now. His family survives, he survives, and everything is good. Okay, but this is not where it ends. Okay, Joseph is now telling them how this famine is going to continue for another five years. And God sent me before you for your salvation, for your deliverance. So I am here now ready to give you the salvation, the deliverance that um, God has prepared for you. Okay? When God forgives us, you know, like the spiritual meaning behind this for us, when God forgives us, we are like the brothers of Joseph. Okay, We are the ones who are selfish. We are the ones who are sinful. We are the ones who reject. We are the ones who attack. We are the ones who do as we please. Right, And then Christ comes and he says, I forgive you of your sin. And not only that, but now I'm ready to give you all of eternity. Now I'm ready to give you all of the joys of heaven. Now I'm ready to give you far beyond. And he says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What God is preparing to give to us and what God has given us is far, far greater than what we deserve. Just here, as the brothers of Joseph are receiving what is far greater than anyone could ever deserve, especially considering what they did. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Right? He sees the, the hand of God in absolutely everything, even the actions of the wicked, even the things that they do for sinful and selfish reasons. God has a greater purpose for it. Look how God has elevated him and made it known to him that the reasons for all his suffering he experienced in his life was because of this. A lot of times we go through long periods in our life of suffering, just as Joseph did. And Joseph did not understand for the 14 years that he was suffering. He did not understand what was the point of this. Like, God never revealed it to him. He never told him. He never let him know ahead of time, hey, you're going to have to endure these 14 years. And after the 14 years, you're going to see what I'm going to do, right? He didn't even give him, like, a, like, a, like something to nibble on. He didn't give him something small like to think about, okay, what's going to get me through these 14 years? He didn't tell him anything. It was because of Joseph's faith that he understood that he doesn't have to understand. I don't have to understand everything that God does. I don't have to understand every reason why God does what he does. All I have to do is trust that God is good, right? Trust that God is good. When we say, what do I have? When, when I say I have faith, what does it mean, right? Do I have faith in a certain outcome? Do I have faith that God is going to give me a certain job? Do I have faith that God is going to have me marry a certain person? Do I have faith that a certain person who is sick is going to become well? Well, if I have faith in those things, well, maybe I'll be disappointed. Because maybe whatever I want won't happen, right? We've, we've often wanted certain things and God did not come through for us, right? That doesn't, that's not what it means to have faith. To have faith means I believe in the character of God. I believe in the goodness of God. I trust him and I leave him to decide for me what is good. I leave him to decide for me. Even the things that don't look good for me, even the things that seem bad, even the things that seem like they're going in the wrong direction, to have faith means I believe that even these things are good and I want to go through them because I trust God that much. This is what Joseph did. He never grumbled against God for these 14 years, even though he didn't ever could have imagined that God was preparing him to be like a ruler in Egypt. That was never even once, I'm sure, ever crossed his mind could even be possible. And yet that is what God did. He turned this horrible situation that lasted for so long into something good. And God, even though he doesn't reveal to us or make it known to us why we experience the things that we do, maybe there will be a day where we will understand 
And even if we don't understand while we're still in the flesh, then certainly we will understand in paradise. So he goes on, right? Now that he's told them, this will be a great deliverance. This will be your salvation. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Okay, so it was not enough even that he was going to give them food, but he was going to invite them to live in a certain part of the land of Egypt called Goshen. Okay, he invited his whole family and he says, come and live here, right? And that this place is going to be 100% only for you. You're not even going to share it with anybody else, okay? When, when Christ was speaking uh, to the apostles before the crucifixion, okay, he told them, this is in John 14. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. This is exactly what Joseph did. He went ahead and he went into a dark place. He went into a difficult place. He went into a painful place. And it was through that pain that he ended up becoming the ruler of Egypt so that now he could bring his family and say, I now have the authority to give you this place for you to live, right? Just as what Christ did. What is it that Christ did? Christ went to the cross. He went to Hades, right? He went through suffering so that he could bring us up to paradise with him. And he says, what? I have prepared a place for you. In my father's house are many mansions. There is a place dedicated to you for you to live, right? Joseph is telling them all of this, all of everything that you see, what is happening to you, God did it for you. You can ask like the brothers, like what did we do to deserve that? You know, like the brothers have done nothing good. Like in the whole story about the brothers, right? You see a lot of bad decisions. You see a lot of violence. You see a lot of selfishness. You see like a lot of bad stuff that they've done all throughout in the story. When, you know, when we're reading the book of Genesis. Did they do anything redeeming? Did they do anything to say that, you know, um, they deserve this great honor, this great privilege, this great salvation, right? They did nothing. The same is true with us. Like when God came and incarnate, what made him to be incarnate? What caused him to decide his incarnation? Was it because we deserved good things? It was not because we deserved anything good, right? It says what? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. So there is nothing redeeming that we did in order to deserve salvation. And that is why it is salvation. Here, Joseph is showing the love of God to his brothers, the way that the Lord Christ shows to us that it is, it is not because we are good, right? But because we trust him that God prepares this place for us. He prepares this place for us. He says here in verse uh, 12, the verse before, he said, if I were not to give you this deliverance, if this were not happening now, then you would essentially be destroyed in poverty because of the famine, right? What are the alternatives? Like, what are the, what are the options of life, right? The options that people think about in life is, you know, you, you might have this level of success. You might have this level of success. You might have this level of success. Um, and, 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 and often when we look at the world, we look at it in, from the perspective of how can I have success in the world? How can I gain? How can I build myself in the world? How can I, you know, have, have meet my goals that I have in the world? And that's, that's how we live, and that's how so many people live. But what is Joseph saying? He's saying you have two options. You either continue to live your life 
in which case you will have destruction, or you come to the place that I have prepared for you, in which case you will live and thrive. Those are the only two options. There is no middle option, right? There is no middle option. You either choose one or you choose the other, right? When Christ says you cannot serve both God and man, there's two options. There is the option of the world and there's the option of God. There is no middle ground option, right? There is no option where you can be in between these two things because the way that we live when we live for the world is one way and the way that we live when we live for God is a completely different separate way. There, there is nothing in common between the two ways, right? And this is what Joseph is saying. You can choose to live your life as you are. You can continue in Canaan. And if you continue in Canaan, what will happen? You will die. You will suffer miserably and you will die in poverty. Or you can come and accept this free gift that I'm offering you. Come and accept this free gift. You have an entire place of Egypt all for yourself that you, I'm giving it to you for free and you have done nothing to deserve it. Okay? This is, this is the offer, right? The world that we live in is by its very nature a world of destruction. Everything about our destruction. You know, like anyone who studies like thermodynamics, you learn about the, the law of entropy, right? The very nature of the universe is one of destruction. That if you put something somewhere and you don't touch it, you don't do anything to it, eventually it breaks down by itself, right? Eventually it becomes uncreated, if you want to say. The, the, the things that were holding it together eventually erode, they break down, they crumble, they don't stay like they were. That is the world that we live in. And by its very nature, it is a, it's a destructive world, okay? We employ so much effort just to keep the world from being destroyed. We have to maintain everything. We have to maintain our buildings. We have to maintain our bodies. We have to maintain um, our cities. We have to maintain our laws. We have to be put so much effort just to maintain anything because we live in a world that is by nature destructive. The, the, the world of God, the kingdom of God is the opposite. It is by nature life-giving, meaning everything there is filled with light. It's filled with life. Nothing dies. Everything continues eternally and it continues in perfection, right? This is a symbol here of what, what Joseph is offering them. He's saying you can either go and live in your poverty world, your world of destruction, or you can come to a place where there is no destruction, right? In a spiritual sense. <clears throat> also, we see we, uh, in terms of a symbol of the, the like, uh, the Messiah here, okay? Joseph is speaking about his glory. He says, well, I'm like a father to Pharaoh. Come, go tell my father about all the glory that I have in Egypt, right? He says, what? Well, so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt. What does this mean? When the Lord was on earth, he looked like a very pitiful man, right? He was always going from place to place, People were always hating him. They wanted to stone him. They crucified him. They beat him. Like he had nothing. He was very poor, right? And, and even when he was on the cross, the people mocked him. And they said, if you, you think you can, you know, tear down, build the, in temple, or build, uh, tear down the temple in three days. Okay, if you can do that, then come down from the cross. You know, they mocked him. They didn't see him as a man of glory. They saw him as a man to be pitied, a man who was like so full of just weakness and and. But here, kind of as we can see with Joseph, like he lived this period of time in, in like uh, suffering and poverty at prison, right? But at the end, you see kind of like, quote unquote, his resurrection. You see his like, his glory revealed that now I am in this place where I can command the people, where I can save the people, where I can bring people and tell them where to live and where to go and all this. You see his glory now, right? Just as we see in the resurrected Christ, we see his true glory that was like mask that was hidden from us, that we didn't understand and see it from the beginning because he chose to live in, this, in the state that he was. He chose to, to like uh, in the incarnation to put weakness on, to, to appear weak to us, right? But ultimately we see his resurrection and glory. Here also we see the resurrection and glory of Joseph. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. 
Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. It's very clear that everybody loved Joseph. Right? Everybody loved Joseph. Pharaoh loved Joseph. The servants loved Joseph. The people loved Joseph. You can see that like in Joseph, he was like this figure that was beloved by everyone, right? In Egypt. Why? Why was that? Why, why do you think he was so loved? He's their savior. He's their savior, right? But how do they know that he's their savior? Okay. But what does it mean to need a savior? So, so they knew that there was a famine. They felt like they were in need. They, they, they felt that without him, we would die, right? Without him, we would die. Anyone is gonna love someone that just saved your life. Like you get a complete stranger who you meet that you're in some situation where you're in big trouble and this random stranger comes and he helps you, you're gonna love that person, right? Because they just did something so important for you, right? They did something you couldn't do for yourself. They did something that without them, you would have died or something catastrophic would have happened to you. You would see them as a hero, as a savior, even though you don't even know, maybe you don't even know their name and you would feel that toward them, right? You would appreciate them. You'd wanna give them gifts. You would, you would feel so happy to be with them just because you see how good they are or what it is that they did for you. When we speak about the Lord being a savior, and then we see so many people in the world don't care about that, right? It's just, in, it's indifferent to them. What does that even mean? I don't know. Like people think that God is about making laws and rules and commandments and telling them what they should do and what they shouldn't do and being angry with them and, and restricting them and controlling them. And, and, and they don't want to believe in God altogether and they don't, right? Why? What's the difference between the people here that love Joseph and the, and the people in our society? Right. The people here don't understand their need, right? They don't understand that there's a problem that needs to be fixed, right? In the world, we are born into this, right? Like we are born into this world with all its disasters and catastrophes and death and suffering. And unless we are made aware that this isn't the way that we are intended to live, and that there is someone that can save us from that, right? And death, of course, and save us from death. If we, are, if we are not aware that there is a problem that needs to be fixed, that I am not going to revere the one who's claiming to fix the problem, right? I don't feel like I'm in need of salvation because I don't think there is salvation. I don't think that there is anything else. I feel like this is all, right? Like if, if we speak about the seven years of famine, okay? Right, there were seven years of famine. Let's say that these seven years of famine, they represent like our life on earth, okay? In Joseph's time, those people who lived in the famine, they knew what it was like before the famine. Like they, they could compare themselves with, no, we remember a time when there was plenty of food for us. And now we are going through this period of suffering. And we believe that Joseph can get us out of it. And we can actually be back to, you know, life without famine again. They can imagine the life without famine because they remember that life without famine. And they believe that getting out of the famine is possible. And they believe that Joseph is the one who can do it. Okay? So that's why they loved him. They saw that he was working for them. They were willing to listen to him because actually what did Joseph tell them? He told them, Keep, take some of your food that you are growing and give it to me. Right? That's, how, that's what he told them to do. How is it that Joseph was <clears throat> storing all this food? He collected a percentage of all the food that the people made. The people were not convinced of him or what he was doing. What was their reaction going to be? I'm not giving you my food. I, I, have, I need my food. My family needs the food. I'm not giving you food. You know, 
But because they believed that there was a famine, and they understood that the, the danger of that famine, and they believed that Joseph could save them from the famine, they gladly gave him the food, and they trusted him, and they believed that there could be life after the famine again, right? But imagine yet someone who was born in this famine. They never experienced anything else, and there wasn't anyone else around them to tell them that there is anything else, that this is it, this is life, right? There is nothing but beyond this famine, you know? And I want you to give of your stuff to me. Just give it to me. And, I, and I'm going to change everything. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. I don't have a frame of reference to, to, to know what does it mean not to be in famine, right? Maybe I've never experienced it before. The problem in our world is people do not believe that there is something better. They believe that the world is it. And if the world is it, all I care about is let me enjoy my food. Let me enjoy my stuff. Let me enjoy my time. Let me enjoy the things that I have. I'm not going to give it to you because I need it. Because life is short and that's hard enough and I just want to enjoy the stuff that I have and that's it, right? So when, when Christ comes, when God comes and he says, give me of your time, give me of your things, give me of, you know, yourself, then our, our, the, the question we ask ourselves is, do I believe that this is my savior? Do I believe that this is the one who can take what I give him and turn it into salvation for me, right? To turn it into eternal life for me. And that I want to give it up freely and willingly because I believe that he will take me to a better place, to a better life, to where the famine, the period of famine that we're in is going to end. Or do I believe that he's just another guy who is telling me to do something that I don't believe in? That's the problem of the world. The problem of the world is they don't understand that they, they are in need and there is a solution to that need. And they're refusing to give up anything of their own in order to see that solution, in order to see that salvation, right? That, that God is calling them for. Okay. <clears throat> in, uh, in Acts 4.12, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? This is the name of Christ. There is no name under heaven by which we must be saved. He is the only savior. He is the only one that can solve the problem of death, that can solve the problem of the separation from God, that he can solve all the problems that we are in in this world. He is the only one. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Okay. So sadly, the devil has warped our minds. And he tells us that instead of Christianity being something positive, something that unites us with our creator, something that frees us from the shackles and the pain of the world and the freedom from death, instead of that, he tells us all it is, is you have to follow a bunch of rules and submit to a bunch of stuff you don't want to do and give up stuff that belongs to you. That is the problem. When we think about it in those terms, we're hesitant. But when we think about it in the terms of I'm giving to Joseph, who is taking this food for my salvation, right? It's a different, it's a different way of thinking, right? So when we are preaching, when we are evangelizing, when we're talking to people, right? What is it, what is it that I should do? I should make the people aware that they are in need. I, I'm not coming to push something on them that they don't even understand why do I need this? Why are you telling me to go to church? I don't need to go to church. I like sleeping in the morning. Why are you telling me to wake up on a Sunday? You know, why are you telling me to tithe? Like, I work so hard for my money. You want me to give up my money? Why? It doesn't make any sense to tell people what they need to do without first explaining to them why. Why do you need this? What is the problem that we're trying to solve, that we're trying to address? And then how are these things addressing it? Right? <clears throat> And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart. Okay, so, so, so he's, Joseph is now going to send his family, his brothers, back to Jacob and all of the women and the children. And he's going to tell them, bring your stuff, bring your people, bring your family. He said, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this, 
take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Again, what did, what did Joseph's family do to deserve this? Right? Nothing. They didn't do anything. Okay? Like, like <clears throat> Pharaoh did not even meet them before. You know? Pharaoh, Pharaoh did not know them. He didn't know who they were. Who knew who they were? Joseph. Right? It is through our relationship with Christ, right, that we become the children of the Father. Right? We become co-heirs with Christ through him. And we are now offered all of these things. And he says to them, what? don't even bother bringing your stuff. Your stuff is so irrelevant. Your stuff is nothing compared to the stuff you're going to have here. Right? Do not be concerned about your goods. You know? Your, your, your toys, your money, your food, your entertainment, anything that, that is yours, what is in heaven is much greater. Don't even think about it. You know, sometimes, like, children, they'll ask us, like, well, are we going to be able to play and do this in heaven? Are we going to be able to have this in heaven? Are we going to be able to go to Disney World in heaven? Are we going to be able to do this? No. <laughs> because what God is giving you is far greater than anything you can imagine. Right? Do not be concerned. That's why attachment is so bad. When we are attached to the world, to the things in the world, this prevents us from wanting to take this journey because now what's going to happen is there is this journey, right? <clears throat> there is this journey. He is telling them, go to Canaan and, 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 and travel all of your family together. You're going to, have, you're going to leave behind your stuff and you're going to do this journey to go from Canaan to Egypt, okay? And when you get to Egypt, you're gonna have everything you ever imagined. You're gonna have the fat of the land. You're gonna have the best of the land. Do not be concerned about your goods, nothing, okay? <clears throat> so so this is now what they are having to do, okay? Um, that the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. He sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Okay. Joseph gave them everything they needed for the journey. Okay, and he gave them what garments? What does the garments represent? Okay, the church fathers say the garments they represent, okay, uh, the union with the Lord Christ. Okay, in Romans 13 14, it says, But put on the Lord Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Okay, so what is this journey? What does the journey represent? <clears throat> The spiritual struggle in life, right? This is the struggle, okay? Um, St. Paul, he said in Philippians 3, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the, upward, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He is putting always in his mind the destination, right? I am leaving everything behind because everything I'm leaving behind cannot compare to where I am going. So every day that we live, we should remind ourselves of this journey that we're on. And notice this last thing that he says here in verse 24. He says, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Do not become troubled. Like this is a difficult journey and you're going to all take this journey. It is a difficult one. Do not become troubled along the way. You know, the... Uh, Israelites, uh, when they were wandering in the desert on their way to the promised land, they became troubled along the way. And they began to forget where they were, where they were going, why they were going there. And they became very like lost, not physically lost, but just they lost their purpose. They lost who they were. It's, it says in Exodus 16, and the children of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, 
when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger when they were grumbling against Moses. They remembered their days in Egypt, not that it was slavery and suffering. No, they remembered the things that they remember the pots of meat. Instead of having to eat this manna, this bread that's coming from heaven every day, we could eat meat, we could eat what we wanted to eat, right? It's easy to get lost along the way. It's easy to forget the destination. It's easy to just get lost and change direction and go back and just kind of be like not focused. This world is a very distracting world. We have a lot of demands on us in this world, right? We have a lot of demands. There's a lot of things that we have to do beyond just spiritual things, you know? Like we have to work, we have to study, we have families, we have expectations, we have things that make life difficult, right? So in the midst of all of that life, in the midst of the traveling, right? We have to always remember what, what is my ultimate goal? Where am I actually going to? And living life in order to get there, right? Living life in order to get there. Not to be like these Israelites that said to themselves, well, you know, why don't we just go back to Egypt? Everything was good. Everything was good where we came from. The pots of meat, that was good. You know, convincing ourselves that this life is so much better than it really is, right? Indulging in this life, wanting to be attached to everything here, right? This is the journey. So even though Joseph offered them absolutely everything, even though they did absolutely nothing, right? Maybe there would have been some hiccup along the way. Maybe the journey is troubling. Even though God offers us the mansions in heaven, even though God offers us all this glory and everything that he has offered us, why isn't it so easy to always follow him all the time? Because we get distracted, because we get tired, because we get lazy, because our flesh is weak, because we are attached to the world for all the reasons, right, that we talk about. This is why we always have to think, right? We always have to remember and remind ourselves of who is it that we worship? What is it that he has prepared for us? What is it that he has called us to do? Why we are doing what we are doing? And it's not for nothing. And it's not simply because this is what we were taught. No, this is, there's a reason. There's a reason why we do what we are doing. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. All the glory of, of Egypt was not what interested him, right? He didn't, he didn't care about having any positions or any power, any luxuries or anything like that. You know what? My son is the king, you know, so I'm going to have a nice everything. No, that, that's not what he, his focus. His focus was, I want to see my son, right? I want to see the Lord. Why is it that we want to go to heaven? I want to see the Lord. I want to be with the Lord. Right. That is that is why. OK. In Psalm 73, 25, it says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. What makes heaven heaven? It's the Lord makes heaven heaven. It's not because it's not because of anything else that's there. It's not a show. It's not I want to go there and see all the angels doing their thing and all these people over here doing this. I'm going because I want to see the Lord. I'm not even going there because I want to see my family. I'm not going there for any other person. I'm going there because I want to see the Lord. And if the Lord is in heaven, I want to be there. If the Lord is on earth, I want to see him there. There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. This is what he wants to see. This is what Jacob cares about so much as he wants to see his son, right? I will go and see him before I die, right? What are we seeking from God? Why are we going to him? Are we going because we want to ask him for gifts and presents and, and, and blessings? No, I just want to see the Lord. Right? I should seek him for who he is, not because of any benefit that I can have from him. So this is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. We see like in such like, clarity uh, the imagery like between uh, the analogy between uh, Joseph and the Lord Christ and the salvation that he offers to, to his family and the salvation that Christ offers to us and how that, that he brings us and gives us what is far greater than we could ever imagine or what we could ever deserve. 
So we ask God to always remind us to keep this in our mind all the time. That this is something that if we forget, then we, we don't know where we're going or why we're going there. But if we always remember every day, we remind ourselves of this, then we will always have a focus. We will always have uh, a direction of where we should be living or where, where we should be going and how we should be living to get there. Does anybody have any comment or question before we pray? Yes. Yeah. Or sorry, sorry, Fiddy, and then no, go ahead. Yeah. There's this. Uh, you talked about uh, the journey and this the importance of the journey and all that kind of stuff. Actually, the question that I have is today: what people are like. You talked a lot about how when we live in luxury, we don't want God, or we don't look to God uh, for help. But now we are in need. We have this pandemic. We have all these problems around us. So we we should see God. But there's this idea, I think, uh, that is no, not letting us go to God or not letting unbelievers go to God, which is, you know, uh, when people say that God is making this pandemic or permitting this pandemic, not maybe not the idea of the wrath, but to let us come back. So we become rebellious. Oh, you want us, you, you begot us this pandemic or you permitted this pandemic to happen. We don't want, uh, we don't want none of that. We don't, we're going to be rebellious against you if you did that. How can one answer that idea? Sorry to phrase it that way. No, thank you. So the question is, is, um, the idea that God allows different kinds of suffering in the world, like the pandemic we're in, and when we speak about how God would allow such a thing in order for us to turn to him and return to him, that this might cause anger and a spirit of rebellion in some people, uh, you know, not, not going to him, but actually going away from him, right? Um, so the, the problem is the human pride, right? We, we want to believe that we are in control. We want to believe that. And as long as we believe that we are in control and that we are masters of everything around us and that we are not in need of anything, then we can never accept the idea of God. The, the suffering we experience in the world was not created by God. You know, we say, what is the, what is, what is the world that God made? You know, you go back to Genesis, you know, First two chapters, that's the world that God made. That's, that's the world that God intended for us to be in. Right? He intended a place where every need is met. There is nothing that we are lacking. There is no death. There is no pain. There is no suffering. Nothing at all. Right? And how is it that we got the world that we're in now? It's because of our sin. It's because of our choices, not because of God's choices. We are experiencing all the things in the world that we ourselves have brought about in it. Okay? So yes, obviously God can stop something or he can allow something, but God allows us to, our, our free will to, to be exercised, both in, in our persons and in nature, you know, uh, the, 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 our free will, God does not stop. So we don't, we can't point to him and blame him for, for anything that, that he has done or anything like that. And when we talk about that God can use, can turn any suffering into good, right? Just like we see in the life of Joseph. So the problem is the human pride. If I am refusing for there to be another above me, then there's nothing that can be done, right? This is why pride is the, is the, is the worst sin because it is, it is one that is very difficult to repent of. We have to be broken in our pride and to feel like we are in need. And actually, this is part of the reason, this is something that happens in the midst of suffering. When suffering becomes bad enough, oftentimes people, maybe for the first time in their lives, they're willing to pray, even those who don't believe in God, right? So I'm not trying to say that God is manufacturing this, but I am trying to say that even the, even the, the most difficult pains and sufferings in the world can, can lead people to God, but they have to be willing to let go of this problem. 
So Benjamin was like his most beloved brother. He was the younger, youngest brother. He was the brother that did not participate in any of the things that the other brothers had like uh, conspired to do against Joseph. So that's why, and Benjamin was the other brother from his same uh, mother. That's why like he had like a very close attachment to him. Um, and also he, you know, he hadn't seen him for so long and he was the youngest and he was not like conspiring and yeah, so in, in so many ways, he had like a close connection to. And then, I guess my question is, I mean, there very well might be. I did when I was researching for all of this and preparing, I didn't find specifically, um, but I'm sure there's something that some the church fathers commented on, but I'm, I'm not aware of it. Yeah. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O Lord, for your blessings and help us to see you as our saviors, not only as a God who is far away and giving us commandments, but to understand, O Lord, that the reason for those commandments is for our salvation. We ask, O God, that we would see you as we see the relationship between Joseph and his brothers, and how he forgave them so quickly and did not want them to suffer by any means and offered them a place to live in Egypt and offered them everything that was far better than their own. Grant us, O Lord, a deep and abiding understanding of your love, to feel and experience your love in, in everything that we do, and to desire, O Lord, to approach you, to be close to you, to have a relationship with you, to be willing to sacrifice our things, because we know, O Lord, that you are greater than anything that we have, and we desire you, O Lord, more than any other thing. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here is as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.